Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's uh, turn our eye now to uh, foreign affairs. I want to bring in our first guest, Micah Zenko. He is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Micah, thanks for joining Glad us here. Glad to be here this beautiful at the morning. Pierre Power Breakfast. We've got the place all to ourselves, a lovely view across the uh, park, Central Park, with the snow falling. Uh, what do you think the view is uh, from China uh, of the new Trump administration? We learned that uh, President Donald Trump uh, sent a uh, letter rather than a tweet or rather than an actual phone call to Chinese President Xi Jinping. And I believe the president has spoken with a variety of foreign leaders. Why is this the way he's communicating with China? Well, most importantly, he's spoken by phone with the Taiwanese president before he spoke uh, by phone with the leader, the recognized political leader of China. So uh, it's hard to read the mindset of the individuals in Beijing, but the contrasting messages from senior officials from a president who makes the consistent claims of currency manipulation and trade wars to a secretary of state and a White House spokesperson who has said that the United States will prevent China from building on islands, which it claims it's theirs, essentially placing a naval blockade around them. So if I'm the Chinese government, I still don't know what Trump is serious about and what he means when he wants to have a constructive, quote, relationship. Well, maybe they'll be checking their Twitter uh, (laughs) account in order to get that information. And I just want to give you information about Twitter. Twitter coming in uh, fourth quarter uh, adjusted earnings per share of 16 cents versus the estimate of 12 cents. So a 4% beat and monthly users match estimates. So a lot of people still using Twitter, but uh, perhaps uh, not moving ahead. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me, uh, Micah, is there a strategy that you can divine from the actions of the Trump administration? Because we know that China is in the crosshairs when it comes to trade, but also when it comes to currency values. Sure. Well, I, my, my assessment is this administration is still very young. Uh, uh, campaigns are consequence-free events. You can say whatever you want, but once you become uh, the, the, running, the, running the actual country, you have to actually develop and implement policies. Right now, we haven't seen any. We've seen a series of blusters to Iran that are very nonspecific, telling them they're on notice, uh, seemingly giving a pass about some of Russians' uh, aggressive actions uh, in the Baltics, as well as its inability to resolve its military dispute in Crimea, and then taking a hard line with China, but again, not making any specific demands on Chinese behavior. So uh, the, the sense that there's a, pr- a strategy, which means a clear vision and prioritized uh, uh, efforts to do so, there's nothing like that yet, but that doesn't mean there won't be. This is early stages. 
Now, the early stages also with the president and the uh, administration's relationship with uh, Russia and Europe. And I'm wondering if you could just describe what is Vladimir Putin's intention and how does that fit into what's going on with the European Union? It seems as though he's being successful, at least in stirring the pot with Europe. Well, if you were a criminologist and you could read Vladimir Putin's mind, you would do really well uh, in the currency markets and you should have a job doing risk analysis because nobody's really quite known what Vladimir Putin wants. The one thing we do know from his behavior and his statements is he cares about the political outcomes in which Russia has an interest, as lots of great powers do, as the United States does in the Middle East, as uh, China does in East Asia. And it's his willingness to use information, influence, uh, uh, using military force at below the threshold of actual conflict to have uh, to influence outcomes in those states that's what's most to concerning. destabilize them to destabilize them but also to bring into bear uh, political outcomes that are advantageous to him there are certain parties that the Russian government favors over others and they're very explicit about that they're willing to funnel money to resources uh, to provide messaging through the internet and social media uh, on behalf of them and that has destabilized a lot of European Union because it's doing it faster and more successfully than any uh, great power has done in the past um, we're speaking with uh, Micah Zenko he is a, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. We're coming to you from the Pierre Hotel, the Power Breakfast at Perrine. And, you know, Micah, uh, as we look at the future of uh, policy, uh, it's going to be a different Europe, right? I mean, you have the UK leaving the European Union. You have uh, elections that are coming up in the Netherlands and France and in Germany. Uh, Has Vladimir Putin, with the maybe unintended uh, uh, help of uh, President Trump, has he been able to drive a wedge and really, uh, is it possible that the European Union could fracture as a result of these pressures? Well, uh, any great power wants to fracture combined forces arrayed against them. Or and, believes that they're arrayed against and them. Be- well, certainly perceives they're arrayed against them, and has stated it. If you read Russian military doctrine, if you read the statements of the foreign ministry, they believe the European Union is actively looking to suppress and contain Russia. That is their narrative. Okay, but having said, see, that's interesting because having said that, uh, you ask yourself if the President Trump throughout the campaign and so on has disparaged the defense spending of European right. nations. And if we take for fact that maybe the European military coordination is not as great as other sure. as the United States, then what is Vladimir Putin really worried about? Is it psychological and political to deal with his own domestic issues? Or is there really some what kind of threat really does the European Union militarily pose? Uh, zero at the time being. Uh, But this is an old debate. As you remember, President Eisenhower used to say the Europeans are playing Uncle Sam for Uncle Sucker. This is not something new that President Trump... But living under our defense umbrella. Living under our defense umbrella, not spending adequate money. The difference is that under a NATO informal agreement, the, Russia, uh, the European defense ministries have spent 2% of their GDP on defense. Correct. So only a handful of them do. The United States spends about 25 to 3%. But what Trump is saying is differently. He is claiming that he wants the Europeans to reimburse the U.S. Treasury for the U.S. forces in Europe and for the uh, mutual defense treaty that we have with them. That's a significantly different thing. And, and nobody in Europe is going to hand money to the U.S. Treasury on behalf of the U.S. serving as a Hessian mercenary army for the Europeans. So what Trump is worried about is the uh, perceived efforts of Western forces to destabilize uh, uh, the political outcomes in Georgia and Ukraine. And there were Western interests trying to 
have different outcomes in, in, in Georgia and Ukraine. He believes those are within his sphere of influence. Those are his orbit, and Russia should determine the political outcomes there. So that is uh, uh, the primary difference, and he worries that coming across the border into Russian territory. We have yet to even discuss trade policy when it comes to Mexico and the United States. Is this a political fight that the president is after, or is there really some substantive economic goal that can be achieved? Well, the underlying issue is based on fear, which is the fear of what emerges from Mexico. I mean, he famously kicked off his campaign in June 2015, mischaracterizing the threat of rapists and refugees and diseases, etc. cetera. Uh, I think trade practices are one that is just uh, uh, the latest of, of an array of, uh, of foreign fears. If you open up NAFTA, as people who know about this much greater than I do say, it's unclear to me that the United States is going to cut a greater deal that is predictable, that is time-bound, uh, that provides the, the assurances for U.S. businesses and traders along the, bo- along the border that will allow the U.S. to do long-term capital investments in, in Mexico and Mexico businesses to do trade with the United States. So I think once you start hearing from senior business leaders about the actual implications of opening up NAFTA – this administration will become much more reticent in how active they do that. I'm Pim Fox, in for David Agura. Uh, our guest is Micah Zenko. He is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, joining me now is uh, my co-host, or actually I'm Hi. your co-host, Tom Keen, my colleague. Great to, great to have you here at the Pierre. It's good. Let's get wheels up. up. It's like real snow out there. It is. Right. It's we nice. Just lived, Michael Dart and I were going to walk over, take a leisurely walk over. Was you didn't it, uh, hold hands? No. no New slip. York's finest. Our taxi cabs got us here oh. in style. I got to say, I thought the snow plows were That's all great. out. Everything's good. You know, the, the system is working. How's that? Is that a, does working. that work? Okay. Yeah. That gives me my segue because I want to talk. I want to add, yes, bring in Micah, Micah Zenko. You know, we talk about the, the, the system is working. From your perception and your experience, and I, I know that you've also written a lot about drones, you've l- written a lot about military policy, can you say that the system is working when the press secretary of the, of the president of the United States is asked a question having to do with whether the government of Yemen mm. has asked the United States to suspend drone strikes, and you can't seem to get a specific yes or no answer? Why is that difficult? What, what is that message? Well, to be fair to the a White House spokesperson, uh, he may want to be protecting whether or not the government of Yemen approves these operations. There is domestic sensitiv- there's domestic political sensitivities within Yemen. These are deeply unpopular operations, but the United States provides hundreds of millions of dollars over the years to but Yemen. Who does, but who doesn't authority. know that? I mean, that's like out in the media, online, social. I mean, that's everywhere. Everybody knows it. And when... Uh, an airstrike, for example, the military even uh, speaks directly to it. Well, the question is whether or not, well, when they're done by the U.S. military, yes, we do. When they're done by the CIA, we pretend they don't. So that's, and in Yemen, the CIA and the military run parallel drone programs, which is part of the confusion. So we cannot say which ones we actually do. That's the truth. Right, but I was going to say that the people on the ground don't care. No, they don't care who drops a bomb, including if it's the Saudi government, the American government, the CIA, or the military. You're correct. But they want to be able to maintain some distance, some degree of dissent when civilian casualties occur, as they did on the January 20th with this uh, raid in central Yemen. Uh, So the bigger question was, the spokesperson said, phenomenally, said, anyone who questions the uh, success of this raid puts at risk the Navy SEAL who had been killed, which is quite remarkable because if you spend time with the military, they're the most critical and self-honest about their own operations. Well, I want to go back to what you wrote six years ago. This was very important the time between threats and war, U.S. discrete military operations in the post-Cold World. 
Your next essay in the post-Trump world will be the discrete military operations of the Secretary of Defense. What are you watching for from General Mattis as he tries to bring normality to our defense and offense dialogue? Right. Well, Secretary Mattis now has a very different vision than when he was the commander of Central Command, which is the geographic area in the Middle East. The primary things that he wants to do is assure, one, the homeland is secure, assure defense systems are being protected and secure, U.S. nuclear deterrent works, and our mutual defense treaty allies feel comfortable. The problem is those four core missions of the U.S. military are put at risk when President Trump says flipping things about nuclear weapons, when he tells our treaty allies, you better pay up. Let me ask a question for all of our listeners worldwide, and particularly the people stuck in a snowbank on the East Coast this morning. When do the adults enter the room? Well, the question is, when do the adults and the president start speaking on the same level? When do they start saying the same things? Because what Secretary Mattis says is calm, consistent with U.S. history, and reassuring. What has been said in some of the confirmation hearings by Secretary Tillerson, what the White House says uh, is very different. So the question is, when is the president and his cabinet going to speak consistently about core foreign policy messages? Because they aren't yet. Well, let's just assume that they're not. Let's assume that this is the new normal, to paraphrase Mohammed El-Aryan. It's the new normal in foreign policy. Take us through what you believe to be the biggest flashpoints that could erupt in the next six months? The single biggest flashpoint day-to-day is the Korean Peninsula, because that's where U.S. and South Korean forces are prepared, as they say, to fight tonight. Because there could be a skirmish uh, uh, on the DMZ, there could be an exchange of fire, which escalates to a full-scale war. The U.S. forces have to be prepared to deter that sort of outcome. The second big one, and the most worrisome now, is in the Persian Gulf. Because U.S. and Iranian forces in the maritime uh, domain there are arrayed so closely it's like they're in a phone booth together. They encounter each other within yards, meters of each other consistently. And our national security advisor, Michael Flynn, has said that we are putting Iran on notice. They are trying to scare Iran to change its behavior. What Iran is supposed to change its behavior is unclear, and what the U.S. will do in response is uncertain. We need to have a a more extended conversation. I just put your book out on uh, Twitter, folks. Mike Zanko's important book on discrete war uh, from a number of uh, years ago. He's got a lot of new work as well. Yeah, a lot of newer work as well at the Council on Foreign Relations. Mika Zenkel, thank you. Really, thank you, thank you for coming in through the snow. Glad to be it's here. It's beautiful here, the Pierre Hotel. Always beautiful. But now it's a you winter your, wonderland. Your reindeer is parked outside. The reindeer's outside. Snow coming down here. For all of you, drive careful on the eastern seaboard. Bloomberg 1200 Boston. Bloomberg 1130 in New York. We say good morning to the rest of you. Check your plane flights. Even if you're Dallas to Denver, things could get messed up today. There's a lot of delays here. Yeah, a lot of flight cancellations. Flight Aware saying that I think there were more than 2,300 flight cancellations already. Michael Darter took the surveillance Sikorsky to get here from Connecticut, and he joins us now with MKM. Pim, we've been talking through the morning with Mr. Darter. Uh, let's let's start with the animal spirit. Can we get nominal GDP out above four percent? Can we get real growth plus inflation to a point where confidence really gets restored? Well, Tom, I think the answer is uh, plus four percent on nominal 
temporarily, yes, but from a longer-term perspective, yeah. that'll really depend on whether productivity growth picks up in a meaningful way. And that's a much bigger question mark. So think of the sustainable nominal growth rate is growth potential, productivity plus labor force growth. You know, that's been running at just about 1% per annum over the last five or six years plus the Fed's 2% inflation target. So we've been using a figure of 3 to 4% in terms of sustainable long-term nominal GDP growth, 4% being on the optimistic end, you know, 3% more of the pessimistic side. Uh, but for figures that are you know, well beyond that, I think we're going to need to see a pretty hefty pickup in productivity. Hope springs eternal, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, hope's not a strategy either. Uh, you know, Michael, you mentioned the two key elements, right? Productivity and labor force growth. Right. Let's take each one of those if we can. Labor force growth. This is a demographic change. Exactly. Based on the actual numbers that you have looked at, does it make sense to limit or make more difficult the entry to the United States of more people who are willing to work? Great question. The answer is no, it does not. So there's a lot of optimism about whether certain reforms to you know, regulation or taxation will lift productivity. But the other part of productive potential is these low working age population growth figures, just 0.5% per annum expected over the next few decades, about a third of the post-war average growth rate in a much more restrictive posture on immigration will only and, and I amplify the headwind. You know, and I, and I raise this not, not to really bring up necessarily the immigration issue, but the worker issue, because if you don't have enough workers contributing to things like Social Security and paying taxes, you're going to blow a hole even a bigger hole through the federal budget. Exactly. And, you know, one issue that we have, and it makes sense to put this in the context of what kind of tax changes can we expect, there's about a four percentage point, you know, of GDP increase in spending on the back of an aging population in Medicare. So where is the room to move to dramatic and draconian tax cuts that, you know, at least on a static basis, lose a lot of oh. revenue. There just isn't room for that. Yeah. So if, you know, going for more efficiency in the code, yes, but huge unfunded tax reductions, right. I don't think so. Let's come back and talk about this. Sort of the, the word that's not being said through all this is austerity. And what is the state of austerity in Europe? What is the state of austerity, particularly within the majority uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill? We're talking to Michael Darda about the austerity that isn't or maybe it is. Is this an austere Congress that, as uh, Mrs. Reagan said years ago, will just say no? That's the mystery, isn't it? Well, that's really the pressing question, Tom. What I will say is there are a handful of Republican senators now who have expressed reservations about going down the George W. Bush path of shoehorning tax cuts through a reconciliation process, which is essentially a stick of dynamite that blows up on a okay. future Congress with no spending restraint in rising debt levels. But, but to be clear, here at the Pierre Hotel, are we not talking Reagan, but we're really talking an ethos of the governor uh, and former Vice President Nelson Rockefeller? Is that really what we're reducing? Well, well, we'll have to see about that. I guess from a broader perspective, I would just say... 60-vote hurdle for permanent tax changes. If we want 
changes in regulatory or tax policy to have an impact on incentives in productivity, they need to be permanent, not temporary. The demand side effects will end up offset by the Federal Reserve. So that really needs to be the focus. Is it permanent or temporary? Does it have the ability to lift incentives and productivity? And then we can move on from there. But I think at least in terms of the proposals that are out there, we'd have to expect that they'd be pretty watered down. Mm -hmm. It may not even happen in some cases. We'll see what can get through the U.S. Senate. Uh, Michael Darda, you're an economist, so you get to have two opinions about this. And I want to focus on Dodd-Frank for just a moment because this is a very important industry. And, you know, it has gone through, the financial business has gone through a revolution in, you know, the space of seven years, let's say. Uh, Is there anything that can be done that would not create huge delays from opposition and confrontation? Is there anything that can be done in, let's say, the next three months that would uh, make uh, people who are uh, experts at uh, making decisions on credit uh, feel like they're not being watched 24 hours a day, seven days a week by a regulator or or someone who might... be a right re- might right. want to be a regulator right well uh, perhaps i would just say <clears throat> if we're talking about dodd frank the volcker rule financial regulatory reform yeah the banks have put together this big wish list correct which looks more like roll it all back and nothing that replaces it in essence as my friend scott sumner says a return to the regulatory structure that led to the banking crises of the 80s and then the subprime meltdown so that's probably not a viable option Uh, So we'll see what happens. Fed Chair Yellen recently said, take a look at making, you know, some of the reforms more efficient and effective. That's quite different than a wholesale rollback with nothing to replace it. And you could actually go down the same path of reasoning for the ACA, Obamacare. You know, repeal and replace. What replaces it? What are the effects? If you end up with millions of people losing coverage, at least you end up with a political uh, bomb exploding. And so, you know, both with regulatory reform and the ACA, I'm waiting with bated breath. Bated, but you're waiting with bated breath on the on the Fed. How many interest rate increases this year and when? Market expects two. Dot plot is looking for three. My guess would be three, three. in the last three quarters of the year. How so, do you get there with your nominal GDP call? Well, I get there this way, That Tom. was just under four, right? You were saying, what was it? Yeah, three, I, think three we'll, point? I think we're going to be over four this year, but right. But you said the, on the trend. Yeah, the trend is going to be three to four, in my opinion, if growth potential is running between one and two. And you, and you are being yeah. generous there. Four, is ge- four sustained four is 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 generous. So, I think with the recovery in credit markets that's taken place over the course of the last year, and the bump up in inflation expectations, and the improvement in the labor market, the Fed will be able to to lift rates gradually this year without throwing the business cycle off of a cliff. So two to three, I think, is is reasonable. Um, and, you know, we know that the futures markets aren't looking, you know, probability is very low for March. So it would have to be more back end loaded if they're going to do three. But I, I thought everybody who I thought I think all the labor reports have been saying that labor markets are tight, that, you know, in fact, there was a mismatch, right? Yeah. Something like five point five million openings for four point six million unemployed. So uh, wage pressure. I mean, you, really, only three. 
Is there anybody out there who you think who says four rate increases no. this year? No. Uh, it, it's. Uh, I'm sure that there's somebody calling for that, but the, the issue is the Fed would already have to be guiding markets to a March rate rise, right. assuming they they're going to do one yet. per quarter. But, but my, and they they didn't take the occasion of the last meeting to do that at all in the statement. Given the gilded age that we're living, mm-hmm. or that is personified by our new president, Janet Yellen, as protector in her mind of a lot of other Americans is going to continue to focus on slack in the economy. Right. In a bimodal America, a two Americas, she's got to pay attention to the part of America that's not enjoying full employment, right? Sure. And she has. You know, I think Will she continue though? I, that's the question. I as long as she's there, um, you know, you'll have a Federal Reserve that cares about the dual mandate. And we've essentially, at least according to the Fed, reached the full employment part of the mandate or are very close. Unemployment rate has fallen essentially to the Fed's calculation of the natural rate, the rate that's sustainable over the long haul. The broader measures of underemployment, like the U6 rate, not quite there, but pretty much as close as we've been since the recovery started. So we're much closer. And the wage growth figures are modest, but, you know, two and a half percent hourly earnings growth up from about a two percent trend or just above two and a half is also consistent with a labor market that has is closer to full health keep in mind that the nominal wage figures at or above four percent towards the tail end of the last two business cycles probably that's out of reach we really shouldn't expect nominal wage growth much above the sum of productivity and the Fed's inflation target. Productivity's been sub one. The Fed's inflation target is two. So two and a half to three, you know, might not be outside the you know, the orbit of what we can expect. And we're pretty close to that now on, on wages. So from the perspective of normalization, we might be getting closer. You, you have an outlook if this is the peak? If I was to say this is as good as it gets right now. Well, if you just look at the unemployment rate, yeah. you know, and, and to... Bring this into and productivity has yeah. been picking up. Uh, well, it, it last quarter it was it was better. We'll have to see. I mean, you want to smooth out the the jumpy numbers. The average of the last five or six years has been you know seven tenths of a percent per annum. Hopefully, we move up to the ten year average, which is just over one. Yeah. Even if that's the case, you know, my mm-hmm. range in terms of long run nominal growth of three to four is you know still where yeah. we are. Michael, I hope you enjoy the presidential suite here at the Pier Hotel. Anybody coming out in today's snow? Don't you think, Pim? Why Mike, not? Mike, Mike, get where, you know what? Or maybe he gets a shovel. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. yeah, it's right. One of the two. You Come get to on. The, you don't need to go to the gym. You just need to, you know, yeah. put a little, you know, backbone into yeah. it, right? Good workout, Michael yeah. Darda. Thank you so much for coming Thanks out for on this snowy me. day. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. One Dennis Gartman. Dennis, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Within the struggle and the cacophony of uncertainties, plural, that we have right now, how do you distill all this? When you are there at 4 a.m., 3 a.m., writing your acclaimed morning letter, where is your focal point? What is the uncertainty you choose to look at? You know, that, what, what a great question. And, and the answer is 
I really don't know. The answer is there's always something to talk about. There's always something to write about. And perhaps it's just because I've been at it for 40 years, the things that really are important seem to seem to make their way to the sieve that is my, uh, my mind and say, this is the thing this morning that I want to talk about. This is what's important. I start by writing, first of all, the first thing I look at when I arise at 1 a.m. is what has the foreign exchange market done overseas. I'll always look at the forex market first. Then I'll go around to various pages on, on the net or, or newspapers that come in or news wires that I have and see what, what small piece of information uh, politically has, has developed that has made its way from page 32 two weeks ago to is making its way to page two or three and eventually shall make its way to page one. So it's a matter of sifting through the minutiae and saying, this to me looks to be important. And here, I hold it out to you. Take a look and see if you think this is important also. And this is what I think it means. So, Dennis, what's on page 32 right now? We want two steps ahead. What's on page 32 right now? I, I guess something that has been, that used to be back on page 32, and, and every once in a while makes it to page one recently and then goes back to page two or three, is you know, the circumstances prevailing between China and the United States and the South China Sea. I can remember when I started writing about that a decade ago that no one paid attention. Now everybody does, but I don't think enough attention is really being paid to what has transpired. Secondly, what's on page five, there's not that many things on page 32 anymore. Now what's on page five and making its way to page one is, is the concern everywhere about the United States and trade protection. And I don't think enough people are paying enough attention or giving that enough importance. Well, let, let me propose a, a page 32, if, if I might. Um, one yeah. of the big issues that China has, no matter what, is the availability of potable water. And this is something that has not garnered a lot of attention, but the Chinese government knows very well that you must have potable water available to a growing population. That water typically exists that they can have access to in Russia. Uh, we've seen and um, the West has always reacted to any combination of Russia and China. But uh, given a new Trump administration, I'm wondering if you could comment on is it possible that though that relationship between the three countries changes over the next four years? Oh, I don't think there's any question that that the relationship between the United States, Russia and China changes over the course of the next two weeks over the course of the next two hours. That relationship is always changing, and clearly it's the most important relationship and relationships in the world today. The important, what's interesting is you bring up the concept of water. Water is, is at the, the, the basis of almost all political dissension in the world. In, in, in the Middle East, it's really a water problem. Where does the water come from? Does it flow down the, the various rivers? Does it make it to the ocean? Can it be used? Can it be changed? Can it be can it be desalinated? Being, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very... Water is, is, is central. And I, I, your, your point about water between China and Russia is something, quite honestly, I have not considered. I, I shall now spend some time thinking about that. That's a fascinating topic. Uh, Dennis, let me uh, get some advice on this equity market. Yeah. It has been brutal. Hedge funds really struggling. Everyone, Tom Keen struggling. Dennis Gartman struggling. Yeah. Uh, you were in about Chapter 8 of Reminiscence of a Stock Operator from a few years <laughs> ago. And one yeah. of the great and cardinal rules of that classic book, Think Folks the 30s, is the idea when there's no trend, just stop doing this and get out of the way. When do you know in a listless trend to act? 
the first thing I'll look at is what are the charts telling me. Uh, the, many of your listeners are going to find this amusing and, and, and stupid, but I think there's wisdom here. Is the market moving from the lower left to the upper right? Is the market moving from the upper left to the lower right? Are the highs higher? Are the lows higher? Or are the highs lower and the lows lower? Can, can trend lines be drawn? Sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes you need to put the chart on the wall, stand 25 feet away from it, and ask your four-year-old nephew, Tommy, which way is this moving? Sometimes looking at a market through the eyes of a four-year-old makes more sense. As, as the great turkey said in, in reminiscences of a stock operator, after all, it is still a bull market. And after all, in the case today, it is still a bull market. The markets still move from the lower left to the upper right. I find myself fighting it many times, and almost every time I do, it's proven to be wrong. It's still a bull market. When does it end? Write this down. It shall end when it ends. It yeah. won't end in a moment before then. That's what I've learned. Well, you've learned a lot, and uh, we always appreciate you sharing it with us. So let me pose, <laughs> let me pose this to you. Uh, uh, given that, that you know, money can be sticky depending upon how liquid it is, of course, yeah. and uh, disruption of markets and all those great things, build that into a program for what to do if you believe that history might not repeat itself, but that it rhymes. What do you do? Well, in this case, I mean, first of all, that's it. I, I've always liked that line because history does repeat itself, and more often than not, when it doesn't, it does indeed rhyme. The similarities between today and what happened 40 years ago and what happened 100 years ago are startling, startlingly the same. Mm. What's, what's going on right now? Well, I think fundamentally we have to understand that the monetary authorities in Japan and, and, and Europe are, are still expansionary, while the monetary authorities here in the United States, if not already contractionary, are certainly leaning in that direction. What does that mean? It means on balance stock prices in in japan and europe may well do better than stock prices here in the united states it certainly means that the dollar will do better because less of them are being created and that the euro and the yen will probably weaken on balance and it probably means yeah. that in terms of the euro and the yen gold will probably rise that's probably what all, all that's probably what i can put my arms around and believe the right. most dennis i'm going to put a fancy chart out here i haven't had a time to make it up yet on twitter of Dennis Garbin owning gold in dollars or euros or some other beleaguered currency. You look like yes. a genius hedging gold in foreign exchange. Should yes. we hedge our equity holdings like we hedge gold in other currencies? Well, I, I, a very good question. First of all, let's talk about uh, the gold in U.S. dollar terms and in non-dollar terms. And we'll get to the idea. Of, of hedging uh, equity exposure. You have to understand that when you own gold in dollar terms, you have effectively taken a short position in the U.S. dollar. And I don't think in the current environment that one wants to be short of the dollar. We are, by definition, if you believe that the adjusted monetary base is the stock from which all soups of the broad monetary aggregates are derived, if you believe that, and I do, well, actually, the supply of dollars in the world is declining rather dramatically over the course of the past 15 months. On the other hand, the monetary authorities in Europe and in Japan are continuing their experiment with quantitative easing. In that environment, you would much rather own gold in the terms of the currencies that are being created rather than in terms of the currency that is, that is disappearing, and dollars are, in fact, disappearing. If that holds true, then perhaps it is wise 
if you own for if you are long of equities elsewhere and you are a dollar buyer when you have bought japanese securities for example you have effectively sold short the dollar perhaps you should hedge that dollar exposure there are times when it is wise to do so there are times when it is, when it is tacitly unwise to do so and right now i think if you are effectively taking a position short of the u.s dollar you're on the wrong side you want to hedge that risk away so the answer to your question is yes Yes, they okay. Well, that was an answer. I like that, that Dennis, because I was going to challenge a little bit on the on bull gold because uh, I, I I just don't understand. I mean, I understand the the thesis, but uh, it has no value other than the value that people place on it. I mean, it has that, no connection. Not, I, I won't, Tim, I won't argue with that. The gold is is clearly a psychological circumstance under most events. Under most. And I see because well, that's the thing is that under those events, the government closes the gold window and makes it impossible for you to actually access your gold anyway, or whatever, or some kind of well, scenario uh, like that. What is the uh, scenario? What what is the state of the world in which that gold call ends up being correct? Uh, the state of the world in which that gold call being correct is the same state of the world that has existed for the past two years or so. As I said, dollars are being diminished euros and yen are being created in that environment which is probably going to be at least i think we are now in the post deflation era i'm not sure we're in the inflationary uh, era but i think we're certainly in the post deflationary era in those circumstances with the monetary authorities being expansive in europe and yen why would you not wish to own at least some gold and some. clearly the market has told you that's the right thing to do that's perhaps the most important circumstance of all the market Indeed. has said by its vote you're right in doing so, and I'll continue to do it until the market tells me that I'm wrong. At 12.40, 12.40 an ounce. Well, at 12.40 an ounce in, in U.S. dollar terms, I'm ambivalent to gold. Given the, But I, again, I really don't care about gold in dollar, <clears throat> in dollar terms. I care about gold in yen and euro terms. And in both of those terms, gold has been in a oh. protracted bull market for four years and continues to be so. Uh, Dennis, uh, thank you so much. I just want to tell you, Dennis, I've come up with a great chart that shows the Gartman Euro gold trade. And the only yeah. reason I'm putting this out on Twitter, uh, Dennis, is not so you can see it or Doug Cass can see it the one time a day he goes out on Twitter. But I want the President of the United States to see gold in Euro terms. Maybe he'll subscribe to the Gartman letter. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, it, he won't because he gets taken to task too often in my newsletter. <laughs> well, that would be true, too. Dennis Gartman, thank you so much for perspectives. Oh, it's just amazing the outperformance of gold and euro terms uh, from the financial crisis and particularly uh, in the last uh, three years. not be better timed. Oliver Chen writes piercing notes for Cowan on the state of fashion. He will write on Macy's and the huge challenge that Fortress Lundgren is having. He will write on some of the specialty retailers. Oliver, I thought the New York Times hit the ball out of the park today with their kickoff New York Fashion Week piece. The challenges of the business, the challenges of celebrity, but all of this is the challenges of the consumer. It's a new consumer. Help Vanessa Friedman and all the other people wired into this in New York City, in London, around the world. Who's getting it right right now? Who is meeting the customer challenge best right now? 
Well, the customer challenges are quite eclectic. So who's getting it right? I would say deep value. You think about raw stores, TJX, mixing and matching. The customer is no longer loyal or wants a specific head-to-toe look of a brand. That's trouble for Macy's. I'm going to suggest that the luxury crew don't darken the door of TJX. They, you know, let's, let's, let's start with that assumption. Is anybody getting it right upscale, or is it such a free-for-all? Is Vanessa and the good people of the Times capture today that you don't know, Vanessa doesn't know, Robert Burke doesn't know, no one knows really where, where luxury is going? Well, there are certain aspects of luxury that are working. We're recommending Sotheby's. We are recommending Tiffany & Company as well. I would say luxury apparel is where there's been more problems. And I think the rise of Amazon, the rise of mobile, price comparison, as well as great alternatives in apparel is really negatively impacting that business. Merchandise margins and apparel is under a deflationary pressure. You know, Oliver, one of the things that happens at breakfast is where you like really reveal the detailed secrets of what goes on at an industry. And we're not that far from the flagship store of Ralph Lauren which just lost its uh, chief executive. Um, also, uh, I believe uh, the, just across the street, uh, Tiffany uh, losing its chief executive. Could you explain what is going on at the higher ranks of these companies? Yeah, there's a revolution going on in retail and a transformation. So what's happening here is there's a real problem. Malls are overdeveloped. Also, No, no, no. Traffic. I know that. I know that. But do you, can, for example, w- with Ralph Lauren, right? Right. Can you t- do you know why uh, uh, that did not work out? I think when you think about what's happening here is, is a struggle in terms of thinking about creative versus business and how to maximize profits in the context of this stress. But the department store problems are very relevant because a lot of these companies, that's their most significant customer. Right. No, no, I know that. But I just meant like why this, per, you know, why the CEO left or why the CEO of Tiffany, uh, because it, it's all about the people. It is about the people. And there's different philosophies on uh, the management um, execution in terms of stars versus process versus heritage. So we're in a time of stress with pressure. And I think... Creative directions um, can be quite controversial as brands need to reinvent themselves. The biggest issue is speed and supply chain. So a lot of these companies have to be totally transformed in terms of really rethinking how quickly they get products to market. And and what you do, you look great today, by the way. He's got the whole New York Fashion Week look going, folks. It's not made for TV. You can only take it in on radio. But but Oliver, when, when I look at the state of fashion, it's still about... Meryl Streep, the Devil Wears Prada, aspiration. Or have our aspirations changed? And everybody that puts clothes on us has to adapt to that. They have changed because the consumer has more power now. You think about Instagram, you think about social media. Trends come from the bottom, not the top now. Basically, there's more power, there's more democratization of fashion as well. I mean, to give an idea here, Pim, Givenchy's guy is gone. He's at Versace. You mentioned Tiffany's gone. Ralph Lauren, gone. I mean, it's it's just Oliver, quickly here, and we'll come back. Just more of this? Probably. Given the rise of Amazon, given the problems of stores, given profits under pressure, there's a lot of pressure to change and demand and reinvent. So retail's about reinvention, surprise and delight, out with the old and with the new. Everybody's trotting out retail now. There's a lot of common themes, the death of the mall, et cetera, et cetera. Are you so underweight your world that essentially it's a cash investment or can there be opportunity? 
we do think there's some great long-term opportunities, such as Costco. We like Walmart as well. We do like the off-price sector, TJX and Ross. Yeah, you and then that, luxury yeah. goods. Luxury goods at the high end. Think about Sotheby's and Tiffany. We think they're long-term defensible okay, industries. Go to Tiffany. So Are financially... How can they be good? Is there? An, I mean, can they even do the level? Just left. But can they do even do level revenue growth? That is an opportunity. So we see an inflection happening over time. What they really need to think about is store traffic, also continued product assortment and innovation. So they need to bring people back in the store, not just you buying a gift. They need to bring the woman really desiring product there. So as they balance the two yeah. in terms of self-purchasing and gifting, oh. that's an opportunity. Does the first lady help? She was carrying the light blue box there. I mean, it's an iconic brand. The, the blue yeah. box matters. Well, yeah. I, I, I just let me just give you the, the, the most recent background, right, which is uh, that the CEO basically got fired, right? Michael uh, Kowalski has taken over as the, uh, the interim chief executive. Frederick uh, Kuminal uh, had been there, I think, since April of 2015. And uh, sales declines in Europe. They also talked about uh, sales declines in the United States. But also stepped up security for their very, you know, for uh, their flagship uh, store. But they mentioned very specifically that Tiffany's been cutting costs, rolling out new products, and increasing its marketing. But that the company needs to move faster. So what what do they need to do faster? They need to move faster in line with what consumers really want. So consumers are shopping in all places for jewelry, and the the younger customer, the the middle customer, really needs to desire products. So its product, its marketing, its stores moving faster. A lot of the stores look like they did at Breakfast and Tiffany's, the movie. So you really think about a wonderful store experience that's not just cabinets. It doesn't need to look like a bank, but it needs to look sexy. So it needs, needs to, to engage a, a, you. A, a more modern store uh, uh, footprint. It's part of the formula, but customers are about, I want what I want when I want it. So think about online, think about gifting, think about buy online, pick up in store, think about ship from store, and then the renovation of the assortment. So Tiffany T, Tiffany Atlas, return to Tiffany, they really need to be sexy. So it, it's got to be about desire. But Tiffany sells plenty of bridal jewelry, so people will always get married. They own a polishing facility in Botswana. They have off-tick diamond agreements. So as you think about the world of investing, you want to own stocks that have mm-hmm. this kind of base safety as well. And the There's stock a lot just of got problems hit. that and are well, well known. That was the reason I brought that up, is the yeah. stock got hit because the CEO uh, left. Turn mm-hmm. your, I want to go the other direction. Sally Beauty, uh, Denton, Texas. What's happening? Sally there are what? issues happening. Why. Sally Beauty, her hair is not so beautiful no, right now. Something's going I on I think there. what's happening there is a lot of increased tell Tom competition. About, t- tell Tom about the, the company so, first. Sally Beauty, it's not exactly Patek Philippe. It's no. A lot different. It's it's a lot. It's got fourteen thousand employees. They do, and they have leading market share in hair care. Um, it's it's a great destination if you right. need to enhance your hair, and it's also uh, has very okay. loyal customers off mall. Uh, just to go local here. Good morning, Bloomberg eleven three zero in New York. What's your prescription to resurrect New York Fashion Week? New York Fashion Week will continue to evolve. So I think it's you know fashion has to continue to get fun. It's very somber. But a lot of the designers are really speaking to the reality of culture and what we're seeing now. But, but it, you know, it's, you know, I don't. I think it's it's great that it exists and there's a lot of excitement. But it will continue to evolve. You know, New York is a is a cultural destination. You know, you think about Europe. There's a lot more sartorial heritage. 
Uh, however, uh, men are the new women. Oh, we've been wearing we've been wearing clothes for a long time. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, my basic take is Rebecca Minkoff went to Los Angeles, right? I mean, the LA uh, lifestyle. Help me, Rebecca Minkoff. Yeah, she's lovely. She comes. I mean, Raph Simons is showing here in New York. And as Kelvin, well. that's a big show, right? Kelvin Klein is a big show. Yeah, he's. Tim Fox Ra- is, Raph you is see, I'm, I, I've lapped myself. You're going to be. But I need to exactly. talk. To I've lapped myself. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what Mr. Simmons has to do. Is Pim has lapped himself. Right. Exactly. Klein. We need, we got to talk about tracksuits because tracksuits are really in now, <laughs> as well as bomber jackets. There's a lot of flowiness, really? so it should be Flowing really comfortable. I, this is the Oliver Chen we know and love, <laughs> folks. Tomorrow I'll be wearing a tracksuit with David Girl. Oliver Chen, thank you so much with Cowan. Greatly, uh, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.